0: Old Testament, it's called the book of Esther. And we begin tonight in verse 19 of chapter 2. I'd love for you to open your Bibles and read along with us. If you forgot to bring a Bible tonight, there's a Bible under the seat in front of you, hopefully close by. And you can uh, turn to page 568 and read there right along with us. Esther chapter 2, verse 19. Father, we're grateful to have this time together and for these moments where we can study your word and read amazing stories, learn from things that have taken place in history, be encouraged by what you do. And I pray, Lord, that we would have understanding this evening into your word and we apply it to our lives this evening. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So the book of Esther uh, takes place a long time ago between the years of 483 and 473 BC. So we're talking 2500 years ago. At that time The Medo-Persian Empire is in charge of the world. They're the big dog on the world stage. They occupied all that space, 127 provinces. The story of Esther takes place in this little city called Shushan, also called Susa. That's a capital city of the Persian Empire. There's a citadel there. That's where the king hangs out. The king's name is King Ahasuerus. He's in charge of the whole world at that time. He's a dictator. You don't want to cross him. The Jewish people at that time are scattered throughout all of the different provinces within the Medo Persian Empire. Some of the Jews who had been exiled have returned to Jerusalem, about thirty to 60,000. But by far, most of the Jews are spread out all over the place. And there's even a Jewish presence in Shushan, in that citadel. And there are two Jews that live in that city that are important to our story. Mordecai. He's a third-generation exiled Jew. He lives in Susa. And he actually works at the king's gate. He's a security guard for the king. Now, Mordecai has a much younger female cousin whose name is Esther. Esther was orphaned. So Mordecai raised Esther up Almost like a daughter. And she's very important to the story. Because as we saw last week. An amazing thing happens in the first two chapters. King Ahasuerus has a fight with his queenie Ipu. Her name is Vashti. He ends up divorcing her. Banishing her outside of the kingdom. So the queen needs to be replaced. So all the officials in Persia, no joke, organize a big beauty pageant, big beauty contest. 400 women from all over the Persian Empire are assembled in Susa, and they compete. Esther, the hometown girl, is beautiful. Somebody takes notice of her beauty, and she's she didn't want to, but she's forced to be a part of this beauty contest. Lo and behold, out of 400 of the most beautiful women on the face of the planet at that time, who wins the contest? Esther. Esther becomes queen of Persia, married to King. Ahasuerus. Now, very important detail of the story. Don't forget, Esther's Jewish. And she hasn't told anybody that she's Jewish. Nobody knows that she's Jewish. Nobody knows that Mordecai's Jewish either. So I want to suggest to you this evening that there's sort of a divine chess match taking place behind the scenes in this story. God has moved his bishop, named Mordecai, into position. And God has also moved his queen, Esther, into position. He's put his people in a very strategic place. So with that, let's continue the story. Look at verse 19. It says, when virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now, Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. Interesting detail here it says, the virgins were gathered together a second time. Now, what does that mean? We're not sure. Some Bible scholars believe that since the first beauty pageant was such a success, season one of Bachelorette was just awesome, that they decided to have another season. So it's very possible that Esther had to defend her crown. Perhaps. Or it could have just been a regathering of the virgins that were a part of the original uh, beauty contest. We're not sure. But one thing is for sure. There wasn't a lot of job security in being the queen of Persia. You could lose it very quickly. Esther always lived in fear, in jeopardy of losing her position. Because the king... Man... He was fickle. He could change. He could turn on a dime. It's important to remember, Esther lived in that state of ambiguity. Now it says, Mordecai is sitting at the gates, the king's gate at this time. Something really, really important happens. Look at verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, Two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing any of those guys' names right, don't test me on that, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai's job, he's part of security detail for the king. He's sitting at the king's gate. Two high-ranking officials, doorkeepers, eunuchs, have become disgruntled. They're upset with the king. They plan to assassinate the king. Mordecai gets wind of it, tells Esther, Queen Esther tells the king. The matter is investigated and confirmed, and both those guys are executed. They're hanged on gallows. So now understand, Mordecai the Jew saved the life of the king. He stopped in an assassination plot against the king. Now you notice, he wasn't rewarded for it. He wasn't promoted. He wasn't even recognized. And I tend to think that he was a little bummed by that. He saved the life of the king. However, the account of what Mordecai did is recorded in the official chronicles of the library of the king. And that is a big deal. He may have been bummed that he wasn't rewarded, but five years later, God will use that record in an incredible way to save Mordecai's life and in fact, to save the Jewish people. So it seems like a real significant thing here but this is a key detail to the whole story. And by the way, there's a lesson to be learned. Don't ever underestimate the power of a good work done in the present that may have a huge impact on your future. Mordecai Was probably bummed, but he has no idea how important this single act was. Just being a responsible guy, doing his job. Always, whenever you're in life, you keep doing the right thing. Because payoffs can happen in the future that you never saw. I've always loved the story how on one stormy night, an elderly couple entered the lobby of a small hotel and asked for a room. The clerk said they were filled, as were all the hotels in town, but I can't send a fine couple like you out in the rain. He said, would you like to be willing to sleep in my room? I'll give you my room. I'm on night shift. You can sleep in my room. We'll make a brand new bed for you. No big deal. The couple hesitated, but the clerk insisted, so they stayed the night. The next morning, when the man paid his bill, he said, "'You know, you're the kind of man who should be managing one of the best hotels in the United States. Someday I'll build one for you.' And the clerk just sort of smiled politely, said goodbye. A few years later, clerk received a letter from the elderly man recalling the stormy night and asking him to come to New York. A round-trip ticket was enclosed. When the clerk arrived, his host took him to the corner of 5th Avenue and 34th Street, where stood a brilliant, magnificent, brand new building. That, explained the man, is a hotel that I've just recently finished, and it needs a manager, and you'll be perfect to be the manager. That man was William Waldorf Astor, and the hotel was the original Waldorf Astoria. Not a great story. You're just being nice to an elderly couple that comes into your hotel. You're just doing what's right. And you say, well, I'm not being paid back right now. Where's my reward right now? Wait a minute. You have no idea how God can use those things in your future. God will reward. So... Esther's uncle, Mordecai, will be rewarded for this good work. It's important to the story. Okay, move to chapter 3. Look at verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. So here we meet the man called Haman. He is the antagonist in the story. He's the villain. About five or six years have transpired between chapter 2 and chapter 3. We don't know all the details of what happened, but Haman... Has caught the eye. And now Haman has been promoted. And he's become second in charge of all of Persia. The Jewish people, now this is interesting. The Jewish people, every year they celebrate a feast called Purim. Have you heard of that? Purim. Every year, late February, early March. And I'll tell you why they do that. As we get further into the story. But it's interesting. Whenever. When they celebrate that feast. Jews all across the world. Will gather in their synagogues. And they'll read the book of Esther. Out loud. And there's audience participation. Whenever the name Haman. Is mentioned. Everyone goes. Boo. Hiss. They shake things. They throw things. And the kids. Can't wait to get to verse 1 of chapter 3. Because that's the first time Haman's name is mentioned. Now his name is mentioned 56 times in the book. And every time, boo, hiss. But the first time he's mentioned, the kids go berserk. So they sort of act out this whole thing as they go through it. Haman is one of the most notorious anti-Semites... In all of history. He's an Agagite. They were sworn enemies of the Jewish people. The name Haman means rager. Rioter. And Haman is the guy who literally will attempt the complete genocide of the Jewish people during this time. This is the guy who wants to exterminate every Jew in the empire. Man, woman, boy, girl. So getting back to the chessboard, Satan is now moving his bishop into position. Satan has always hated the Jewish people. The Jewish people have always been a target of Satan. And that's why many, many world leaders throughout history have come in the spirit of Haman from Pharaoh who wanted all the Jewish male babies killed to Adolf Hitler. Haman has come on board. So I want you to remember the chessboard at this point. You got the king. You got Haman, an anti-Semite who's second in command. You got Mordecai hanging out at the gates, and you got Queen Esther, and nobody knows she's Jewish. All right, Haman and Mordecai, well, they didn't hit it off all that good. Look at verse 2. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman for so the king had commanded concerning him but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage Then the king's servants who were with the king's gate within the king's gate said to Mordecai why do you transgress the king's command Now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a what? A Jew. So Haman's a big shot. He loves the power. The king has commanded that whenever Haman shows up within the king's gates. Everyone's supposed to show homage, bow. Bow fall before him, give him all the respect. And I'm guessing that Haman probably requested that. So every time Haman walks into the gates, every time he walks into a room, everyone bows. Everyone, except for Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't bow. Now at first, Haman doesn't see this. But all of the other servants at the gate, they see it. And so they ask, him, they ask Mordecai, hey, what's your deal? And you know what? You could ask Mordecai as well. What's the problem? Why not show a little respect? What's wrong with that? And Mordecai's answer was, I'm Jewish. And this guy is an anti-Semite. He's anti-Jewish. He's arrogant and he's against my people. And so I will not bow before him. So they keep talking to him about this day on, day out. So finally, some of the other king's servants tell Haman, Hey, Haman, this guy Mordecai, he's a Jew. He won't bow before you. And so I believe there became a specific moment on one day where Haman challenged Mordecai. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. Now, at this point, Haman could have destroyed Mordecai, could have killed him dead right there. He had the authority to do so. But look what he does. Verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. Who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. The people of Mordecai. So get this. This guy has such... Hatred and contempt for the Jewish people finds out that Mordecai a Jew and says, I don't want to just kill one Jew. I'll use this as an excuse to kill all of the Jews. We'll go after every Jew in every province of the Medo-Persian Empire. And so Haman and his officials decide to do this. And they decide to put a day on the calendar when every Jew in the land will be executed. Notice how they pick the calendar. Verse 7, or the day. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur—that that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So you understand what's going on. We're going to kill the Jews. We're going to find a day. And they, they cast a lot to decide the day. It lands on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is Adar. Late February, early March. Which is why they celebrate Purim every year late February, early March. Here in 2023, they just celebrated it on March 6th and 7th. So now, just think about that. An official day has been put on the calendar where every Jew in the land is going to be executed. Now, I see a wonderful act of God in this, When they cast that die, it was the first month of the year. And where does the lot lead them to? The 11th month of the year or the 12th month of the year. So I I think that's awesome. God gave them as much time as you could get in a year to get ready for that. They have 11 months. But in 11 months, they're to be executed. This man put all of that in motion. So he's got a task. He's got a date. Now all he needs is uh, permission from King Ahasuerus. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, look how he puts it. There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's law. Therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. Look how manipulative this is. Look how much of an overstatement. Notice that he doesn't mention the people as the Jews. He doesn't tell them that you're, hey, the Jews. He says there's a certain people. They're scattered throughout the empire. They keep their own law. They don't care about you, king. They shouldn't remain. Verse 9. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of who do the work to bring it into the king's treasury. King. There's a bunch of people all over. They're giving you a hard time. Let's destroy them. Let's take all of their money. Everything after we've killed them all. We'll take all of their money. All of their belongings. And we'll put it into the treasury. What does this king do? Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring. From his hand gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. I don't even think the king knew what really was going on. He doesn't even ask any more details. Haman, it sounds good to me. Here's the ring. Now remember the signet ring of the king that was used to seal documents to make them official. And once the king sealed that document, it was set in stone. The king has just given a satanic anti-Semite a ring to do whatever he wants with. And what does he do? Verse 12. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month A decree was written according to all that Haman commanded. To the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, 127, to the officials of all people to every province, according to its script, and to every people in their language, in the name of king Hosherus it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces To destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province being published For all people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out. Hastened by the king's command. And the decree was proclaimed. In Shushan the city. Isn't that unbelievable? A law. Formal law. Every Jewish person in the empire. Will be slaughtered. Killed on the 13th day of the 12th month. Goes out in everybody's language everyone gets a copy of the document it's official, it's formal the end of verse 15 is so chilling so the king and Haman sat down to drink they just sat down to drink like a couple of good old boys drinking beer in a country club no big deal But the city of Shushan was perplexed. Everyone's perplexed. Jew and Gentile, they're all. This decree goes out. They see the document. It's posted in all the city squares. And they're like, what's this all about? Why are they doing this? Nobody can figure this out. Now, here's a very important, very important point. It's good to be perplexed, but it's not enough to be, just be perplexed. Somebody needs to stand up and do something. Listen, somebody needs to stand up and do something. A lot of people were perplexed in Nazi Germany. There were a lot of people. I can't believe what's going on. Can you believe it? Yeah. Great, you're perplexed, but what are you going to do about it? There's a lot of things in our world today that we could be perplexed about. A lot. It's not enough just to be perplexed. There's got to be somebody who's willing to do it. And God's people. Who have been positioned strategically. Should be willing to do something. It's the responsibility of God's people. You've all heard that famous quote. All that is required for evil to triumph. Is for good men to do nothing. Or as Helen Keller put it. Science may have found a cure for most evils, but it has found no remedy for the worst of them all, the apathy of human beings. That is so true. Gang, listen. We are not to be apathetic. We're not just to sit around being perplexed. God's people... Need to take up that mantle and run. God's people, like Mordecai, who stationed at the king's gate in the city of Susa, and Queen Esther. And look what they do. Chapter 4, good verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Now the language is, this guy got in sackcloth, cried out bitterly, and tried to go into the gate. But no one's allowed to go inside in sackcloth. He stopped. He's making a scene Mordecai's going berserk. Full-on protest. Verse 3. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes all over the empire. Mordecai. Right there at the capital. Right outside the king's gate, he's wailing and mourning. Verse 4, so Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Now inside the royal palace, they live in a bubble. Esther has no idea what's going on at this point. Most of the officials inside, they don't know. Somebody comes in and says, hey, your your uncle's going nuts. Out in the courtyard. He's in sackcloth. He's mourning. Esther goes, oh, man, we can't have that. Send him some garments. Get him out of the sackcloth. He refuses. So, verse 6, 5. Then Esther called Hathak one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this is was. So what's going on? Send someone out, talk to Mordecai. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's tre- treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave them a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, that he might command her to go into the king and make supplication to him and plead before him. So not even this eunuch really understood. Hey, what's going on? Esther wants to know, why are you doing this? He comes out of their royal plastic bubble. Mordecai says, oh, you haven't heard. A decree... Has been formalized. Every Jew is to be executed. Here's a copy. Tell Esther. Tell my cousin. Let her know what's going on and tell her that she needs to do something about it. She needs to approach the king, she needs to plead for our people. Verse 9. So Hattach returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Now this is a key moment in the, in, the, in the book. Key moment in the story. Esther's finding out about the plot. She's horrified by it. But she's even more concerned by what her uncle has told her to do. The uncle said you got to do something. Go see the king. Go take care of it. That's putting Esther in a very dangerous position. Verse 10, then Esther spoke to Hatak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king, who has not been called, he has but one law. Put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go in to the king these 30 days. Tell Mordecai, you're telling me to go in and see the king. But Mordecai, you know the law. Everyone knows the law. You can't go see the king unannounced. The only time you could visit that king is if you were summoned. If you went unannounced, normally a person who would show up unannounced would be killed on the spot instantly. If the king happened to be in a good mood and you came unannounced and he lifted his gold scepter and touched you on the forehead. Well, then you'd be allowed to live and speak. But that didn't happen. Most of the time you showed up on an, And Esther says to Mordecai, Do you, don't you understand what you're asking? I could be killed. And she even throws in, Did you notice? I haven't seen the king in 30 days. She's the wife, she's the queen. She hasn't been summoned for 30 days. In her mind, she's probably thinking, Is he mad at me? Have I lost favor? Now you add to that that he's already proved that he's a volatile king, got rid of Vashti like she was nothing. We also know that uh, he's under the direct influence of a satanic anti-Semite. You'll also find out as you go further in the story that this king is not in his right mind. He's not sleeping, he's always drunk. Esther's thinking, man, what you're asking me to do is big time dangerous. It's risky. So, verse 12, they told Mordecai Esther's words. Look what Mordecai said. Mordecai told them to answer Esther. is this. Mordecai says, Esther, I I know it's scary. I know I'm asking a lot. But you're not immune. Don't think you're going to escape just because you live in the palace. The degree demands that all Jews are to be executed. You'll be killed as well. Esther, you have a choice to make. Try something now and perhaps die. Or be silent and certainly die 11 months from this time. And then the most challenging words. In fact, the key phrase for the entire book of Esther. Mordecai says to her, The end of verse 13. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther. Maybe you become queen for this very purpose. Maybe you won that beauty contest. Maybe you won the bachelor, right? Maybe God made that possible. Because you have been put in place. For such a time as this. Esther thinks about it. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go. Gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan. And fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Now, I can't, we can't, I can't overstate how courageous Esther was being. He tells Mordecai, okay, I'm going to do it. Get all the people, gather all the Jews in the city, have them fast night and day for me. I'm going to fast. Our maidservants are going to fast. We're all going to fast. And on the third day, I'm going to go into the king unannounced. And I'm going to try. And if I perish, I perish. incredibly courageous move it's an incredible story and we will continue it later next week Um, what happens you're going to have to come back and find out but I can say this God loves to checkmate Haman you can't wait till you see what God does to Haman and what God does through this gutsy girl named Nestor and Mordecai. It's an incredible story. But I'd like to submit to you that there's a chess match still taking place. 2,500 years later, 2,500 years later, in the church age, listen carefully, Satan is putting his pieces into place. He moves all of his people, he wants destruction, he wants God's people destroyed, God is also positioning his people into place. And I want to encourage you on that. If you're a born-again Christian, your life matters. Your, tes- your testimony matters. And he's put you into a very strategic place. I believe with all my heart. We're born for such a time. Your life here is no accident. And the fact that you're a saved, born-again Christian, a man of God, a woman of God on planet Earth at this time, it's no accident. And you are involved in a cosmic battle. And I would would encourage you, if you're a born-again Christian here tonight, to see your life from that perspective. No, you're not just here randomly. You're not just here to live out your 75, 85 years of life on planet Earth, to live the American dream, build whatever you're going to do. No, it's not that. God has put you on that stage. And I believe that the church has been placed today in very, very incredible circumstances. I do believe that we're living in the last days. I believe that we're close to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The rapture could take place at any time. And God has chosen to put you on planet Earth. At this moment. At this time. And I will tell you. Things are scary out there. It's going to take a lot of courage. You know, I still have hope for this great country. Do you still have hope for this great country? I do. It's the, but man, we are watching our country self-destruct right now. There are horrific things taking place. The church is not wanted. The church is not welcomed in America. The principles of the Bible are not welcomed in America. People are out to cancel And get rid of all church truth. All biblical truth. My friend it's going to take some courage. It's going to take some courage. To stand up. And take your cue from Esther. Literally putting her neck on the line. To save her people. Literally. If I perish I perish. If I'm cancelled I'm cancelled. If I lose my job I lose my job whatever that might be have that mindset understand what god now god has placed you in your job god has placed you in your neighborhood god has placed you in your family god has placed you in this community god has placed you in america god has placed you in that school Please understand that a war is raging over the souls of men and women around you. And God has put you in those people's lives. You're born for such a time as this. Will you stand for Christ? Will you determine and make the commitment that you want to be salt and light? In this dark, dark world. Let God use you. Take that very seriously. Learn from Esther. Learn from Mordecai. We can't be perplexed. We can't just sit around being perplexed. We have to be the one to stand up for truth. To shine and to be salty and share the gospel. And we're running out of time. Don't waste time. Father, I do pray that you would fill us with a sense of urgency. Lord, I pray that we would not allow, I pray that your people would not allow themselves to think of them as lives that don't really matter. Lord, we all matter pray that every single one of us would understand that right now as we are living and breathing on planet earth belonging to you we matter to you in your plan and it's important lord that we stand for you and even if it's scary and it is I pray for your people worldwide. I pray for your people right here. Lord, use our lives for your glory. Help us to spend the life that you've given us the best way we possibly can. Maximum fruitfulness for you. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, the spirit of Haman is very active still today. Satan is loose. He's a roaring lion. He utterly wants to destroy people's lives. And he's deceived so many. But the Lord is also at work. And the invitation goes out to every generation, everyone. You can be saved from the power of darkness. You can be saved, forgiven from your sins. You can be removed out of the kingdom of Satan. And you can become a member of the kingdom of light. That can happen. That's real. Jesus died on the cross for you. And rose again that third day. You put your faith and trust in him. He'll forgive you. You can become a part of his family. A child of light. And he can fill you with his spirit and help you. Deliver you. And use your life for his glory. If you're here this evening and you have not yet done that. Or you need to return to Christ. I invite you to do that right now. Just in the quietness of your heart. Say, Lord Jesus... I'm returning to you. I'm coming to you for the first time. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and rising again. I want to be yours. I want to make my life count. I want to live it for you. Empower me. Strengthen me. Give me courage. I trust you with my life. Be my Lord and Savior. Help me to follow you in Jesus' name.